Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and this is the show where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. You'll notice I threw in a hyphenated adjective there, Chris, award-winning. We're Why very proud of we're very proud of that hyphen. Yes, yes we, are, we are now among the ranks of those who have received an award for something. Um, we are, are the uh, the very humble recipients uh, of the Gabriel Award, and maybe you could tell listeners a little bit more about the Gabriel Award. Yes, well, it all began about two thousand years ago in the Annunciation when Gabriel maybe don't tell them quite that much. Oh, yeah, you're right. I, I tend to do that. So Gabriel is patron saint of. Uh, communication of media. And so the Catholic Press Association named their award that they give to various forms of media that they think are doing things in an excellent way. And so we submitted uh, into a category called storytelling for radio programs. And we won uh, first place for in 2020 for a series of storytelling we did that Chris recommended. Hmm. Uh, we followed up on in uh, October for Respect Life Month. And we did some shows dealing with creative ways to save babies. We interviewed the, the founder and, and CEO of the Obria Clinics. We interviewed the founder of the Baby Box Movement, uh, the head people with the Women's Care Center Movement, uh, Jim Daly, the CEO, president of Focus on the Family, on what they did on uh, Alive in New York with the live third trimester uh, ultrasound in Times Square, and then also the president of Students for Life of America. So we had a number of great interviews during that month. And what does it mean to you, Chris, that we actually got recognized? Well, listening to you run through that list, I'm reminded that essentially we just hit the record button and we have amazing <laughs> guests yes. come on and tell their stories. I mean, we, we have the greatest job in the world when it comes to broadcasting. We just listen and ask questions. Um, but it is always nice to be affirmed, especially by a Catholic organization. Um, and it's a great feeling to know that someone is listening and someone actually enjoys uh, the content that we're putting out there. And, and we'd like to know from you, our listeners, if there is something that's helped you, we want to know what it is because we want to keep doing the things well that impacting listeners. And if you have ideas for topics, uh, several of our shows have come from uh, listener ideas. In fact, the day that we're recording it, Chris and I received uh, an email from a listener who said that listening to the episodes was instrumental in making a big career change from one of the basic sciences into medicine. So those kind of things just affirm that you know, people benefit from hearing this stuff. Well, today we have a guest who will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. His name is Dr. Bill Williams. He's not only a doctor, he's a deacon in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, but we have him on for an R&R episode. No, we don't need relaxation and rest. What we do have is a rheumatologist who is also a researcher. But before we dive into the interview with Dr. Bill, let's go through a little bit of the background of rheumatology and what this specialty is. Well, you know, rheum, R-H-E-U-M, is a prefix that comes from a Greek word meaning discharge, which has nothing to do with what I thought rheumatology was. How about you, Chris? <laughs> I'll have to, as I think back to medical school and residency and even, even beyond that, I haven't come across many rheumatologists. I always thought of them as the really brainiac kind of guys that uh, sort of the house experts from the show house where you, you sent your patients that had something unusual that usually involved pain and you just wasn't, you, you weren't sure what it was. Yes, exactly. Uh, and I, we'll see if Bill affirms or denies that. But there is a shortage and there's a growing or shrinking shortage, growing shortage, that's an oxymoron. But in about five to 10 years, there's probably gonna be only half as many rheumatologists as we need. Currently, they only make up six out of every thousand doctors, but they do something for people that no one knows what else to do for. And they, so they can be very valuable in many individuals' lives. Yeah, they often hover, you might say, or collected around academic large tertiary medical centers and the like. But if you think one of them per 100,000 people, uh, a rather large community could have one or none uh, yes. rheumatologists, which could be really tough. And he's also going to talk to us about researchers. So today's medical trivia question deals with Catholic medical researchers. So here's the question. Alexis Carell uh, died in 1944, was a French surgeon and biologist who was awarded the Nobel Prize. That's that's bigger deal than the Gabriel Prize, by the way, in physiology <laughs> or medicine in 1912 for work on suturing blood vessels. He also invented the first perfusion pump for, for the heart with none other than aviator Charles Lindbergh. 
and that paved the way for organ transplantation. But our question deals with an event that he witnessed and refused to deny, even though other people in science said he should deny it even happened. He was scorned by his French colleagues, and it was so bad he had to leave France, come to the U.S., and work at the Rockefeller Institute. So the question is, what did he witness in 1902, and where did he witness it, that he not only refused to say uh, did not happen, but willingly proclaimed? What did Alexis Carell see? We'll be back with more at the end of the show, but first, we'll be back with Dr. Bill Williams. And we're back for our special interview on rheumatology and research with our guest, Dr. Bill Williams. He graduated from Massachusetts Institute of Technology and Tufts Medical School. He's board certified in internal medicine and the subspecialty of rheumatology. He's also got a great deal of clinical and academic medical research. He's a clinical research in both pharmaceuticals and biotechnology. And to, on top of that, he's even a deacon in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. He's currently president and CEO of Briacell Therapeutic Corporation, which he'll tell us a little bit about. And he was a former editor-in-chief of the Lineker Quarterly. He's married to Lorraine, has three children and three grandchildren. Bill, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. You know, Bill, out of all the things you could have done after four grueling years of medical school, you chose to be a rheumatologist. What led to that commitment? Well, you see, I had this great desire to do extra training and get paid less money than if I hadn't done it. And you would um, do that. <laughs> rheumatology is one of those weird specialties that's like that, where you actually end up doing extra training, but the pay doesn't necessarily go up. No, I was drawn if you to weren't busy enough, you decided to go ahead and become a deacon just because you had all that free time on your hands. <laughs> well, that's exactly right, you know, in between the clinical research. But yeah, so uh, no, rheumatology really attracted me because of uh, a number of factors. One is that you get to interface with, the, with patients over a long time period and really build up relationships with them. And that's, you know, really a wonderful thing to, to have happen as you go along and see the patients develop and you see their children and sometimes their grandchildren come along. And it's, it, that's a really cool thing. Another thing is that rheumatology is one of those, um, you know, everybody's familiar with the show House, right? Sure. And if, if you've ever watched House, you know that the differential diagnosis always includes lupus, but it's never lupus because he's an infectious disease doctor. <laughs> and and the, a kidney doctor, right? And a nephrologist. Right. Right. And so the uh, rheumatologists are kind of the, uh, you know, the ultimate clinicians in terms of figuring out the diagnosis. I mean, I'll tell you a quick story about that. My, one of my mentors uh, was Juan Canoso, Dr. Juan Canoso. We used to call him Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan Canoso. <laughs> Help us, Obi-Wan Canoso. We can't make the diagnosis. Um, and there was a patient once who came to him that he consulted on and he, and he looked at the pattern of their arthritis and he said, this patient has Whipple's disease through a small bowel biopsy. So they called the GI consult because Whipple's is a rare disease of intestinal infection with an unusual organism. And they did the biopsy and it was negative. And plus the GI doc said, he has no symptoms. This is no way this is Whipple's. So Dr. Canoso said, well, Whipple's has skip lesions in the intestines, do it again. <laughs> and sure enough, it was Whipple's disease. Oh, my goodness. So he, he was that kind of clinician. And, you know, that kind of ability to, to put together a constellation of symptoms and come up with a diagnosis and help the patient was really huge. Plus, I loved immunology. And uh, rheumatology is just steeped in immunology. And I was uh, happy to be able to put those things together. Well, along those lines, Bill, give, give our listeners a sense uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, what exactly a rheumatologist does? So rheumatology is primarily an outpatient subspecialty. Uh, obviously, you deal, you deal with patients with arthritis and rheumatism, but also systemic connective uh, tissue diseases. So typically, it's office hours where you're seeing different patients. The visits are typically long because the patients often have a lot going on with a lot of complex medical issues happening and you have to sort them out. And then, you know, and because of that, that's the reason why they don't make that much is because you spend a lot of time on each patient and you can't zip through lots of patients real quick and, 
you know, rack up those billing, uh, <laughs> you know, codes and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's, it's actually very gratifying uh, subspecialty because the patients come to you and they're like, I've got arthritis or I've got this rash or I've got these symptoms and I, I don't know what to do and nobody can help me. And almost always you can help these patients. So it's, it's really gratifying to be able to do that uh, with these patients. Again, primarily outpatient. And then there is some inpatient consulting where you'll go in and you'll see your gout patients who run surgery who got this terrible gout and they can't take any drugs. And so what do you do about it? You know, and the one procedure we tend to do are joint injections. Yes. And that, again, is a very gratifying thing because patients are really hurting. And you do that injection and they can get a tremendous amount of relief. So it's, it's very gratifying that way, too. So you went to medical school like I did. Tom actually didn't go to medical school. He just skipped it. <laughs> he was so smart and ahead of the class, they decided he didn't need it. But the rest of us went to medical school. And then during medical school, you made a decision. Uh, tell us what your training was like, what you did, and what it was like doing that training after medical school. So, of course, to become a rheumatologist, first you have to become an internist, so internal medicine subspecialty. Um, and so I did internal medicine training at the Boston Veterans Administration Hospital, and that was a great, great experience. I think that training at a VA hospital is fantastic because you get to think on your feet. Uh, there's a, a lot of great patients, of course, they're veterans, so these are the salt of the earth. And you know, I didn't realize it at the time what a privilege it was because uh, my life has kind of changed over the years, but you know, it was, it was great training there. And then, uh, you know, but the one thing I will say about VA hospitals is that they're a great argument against nationalized healthcare because <laughs> it is the residents and the interns who are making most of the decisions. And the attending physicians who have all the experience are usually doing research somewhere. So, you know, if that's the model of national healthcare type of system, I don't think we should necessarily go there. And so after your residency, what was your fellowship training like? So I did two fellowships. My first one was in rheumatology at the University of Missouri, Columbia. And that was very, very good uh, training. They had a great clinical program and also a good research program. You got to see all kinds of different patients. Patients would come literally hundreds of miles to be seen in central Missouri there. And they had all kinds of interesting uh, diseases, things that you wouldn't necessarily see in an urban setting. Uh, and so that, that was very good clinically, but I also had a lot of research exposure. There was a VA hospital, again, associated with the teaching hospital. I actually was able to describe a syndrome that hadn't be, been described before called metacarpal uh, arthropathy uh, associated with labor but we called it for short Missouri metacarpal syndrome. And, uh, and that was uh, a group of patients she saw who had bad arthritis in their knuckles. And it was associated with them having over their entire lives been using a lot of power grip in their day-to-day -day work. Uh, so that was really neat. Um, but then I also did a bunch of mouse uh, immunology research, autoimmune thyroiditis with Dr. Helen Mullen and uh, Dr. Gordon Sharp. And that was really neat. And then I went on to do another fellowship in pure bench research at the ah. University of Pennsylvania with Mark Green, uh, who was the inventor basically of the technology that led to Herceptin and other drugs like that. So, so Bill, when, when I hear and our listeners hear fellowship, we think of something that you do in the gathering space before mass. Um, <laughs> what, when we say fellowship, because we do love our vocabulary in medicine, you know, help listeners understand what a, what a fellowship actually is. Yeah, it's basically extra training where you're doing research and at the same time getting subspecialty uh, exposure or for my second fellowship it was purely research uh, exposure and, uh, you know, working uh, a lot to broaden your and narrow in a way narrow and at the same time broaden your set of experience. So you pick up new techniques and new um, ways of looking at things, which is a way of broadening it. But then also you're narrowing your focus on a specific research topic, for example. Uh, and then often, as would happen with me, you find out that it has broader applicability. So uh, it's a very interesting process. So in rheumatology, you talk about treating connective tissue diseases. So for the listeners out there, and us doctors who also don't understand, what does that mean, connective tissue? 
So the connective tissue is the, of course, every part of your body is connected by collagen fibrils. Uh, some of our diseases truly are diseases of connective tissue, like systemic sclerosis, also known as scleroderma, uh, where you see a progressive tightening of the skin, as well as uh, 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 involvement of the blood vessels of vasculopathy. And uh, they also can get arthritis and lung fibrosis and fibrotic disease. I'm very interested in that disease and I've been trying to do some research in it actually over the years, but also you know, you'll see other diseases where you'll have systemic symptoms where you'll see many, many different organ systems involved. Diseases like lupus or like even rheumatoid arthritis, for example, uh, well, it can have multi-system effects, which can affect a lot of different parts of the patient. And so these are considered to be connective tissue diseases as well. So there are two different groups of diseases, and I don't understand the difference with them. So maybe you can help us and our listeners. And that is autoimmune and autoinflammatory. Right. So autoimmune diseases and autoinflammatory diseases overlap to a large extent. The autoimmune diseases, the classical ones are rheumatoid arthritis and lupus and scleroderma, where you have your immune system, especially the B and the T cells, which are kind of the orchestrators of the immune response, attacking the body and causing inflammation in different places. But the autoinflammatory diseases is actually not so much an immune component in as much as something just goes wrong with the white blood cells and they attack normal tissues without the uh, direction of the T and the B cells so much. So autoinflammatory syndromes tend to have different treatment paradigms and uh, respond to different treatments than autoimmune diseases often do. So what would be the most common autoinflammatory condition? Um, I was afraid you're going to ask that. that <laughs> autoinflammatory conditions are much more often associated in uh, pediatric settings and not uh. so much in adult uh, settings, so we don't don't see a lot of them. But um, I will think of an example before we're done. <laughs> that, so, in other words, there's probably nothing in common lingo out there that we would that that the general layperson would know about. Right. I mean, a lot of them are similar to gout. Uh, gout is an extremely mm. inflammatory disease of the joints, and a lot of the same pathways are involved in autoinflammatory diseases as they are in gout. So you can see this tremendous inflammation. The difference that in gout, we know that it's caused by monosodium urate crystals building up in the different tissues, whereas in the autoinflammatory conditions, it's often a genetic defect. Very good. So Bill, what is the typical clinical day like for a rheumatologist? So again, it's a primarily an office setting. Patients will come in. You have relatively long uh, sessions with each patient. And, uh, and what a, is long? Oh, so uh, if I was done with a patient who was a follow-up patient in 20 minutes, that was a very short visit. Uh, a new patient could take up to an hour. Uh, and, you know, typically they would only schedule, you know, eight or so new, new patients in a day. Um, and then a similar number of uh, follow-up patients or maybe twice as many if you're a very efficient rheumatologist. I never got to be that efficient because I spent most of my time doing research. So. <laughs> very good. Well, are there any common misconceptions people have about rheumatologists, or are you just so uncommon that no one has any conceptions of rheumatologists? Yeah, I think the most common misconception is that we study rooms, but <laughs> you know, we're not architects, so we're actually not that. No, I think probably the most common misconception is that we are a very cerebral subspecialty that can do absolutely nothing for our patients because they have arthritis. And what the heck can you do about arthritis? If you got it, you're stuck with it. And you know, that's just simply not true anymore. Our therapeutic armamentarium is very broad and very deep in many cases. We have, and I've seen in my lifetime, multiple treatments arise for diseases that were absolutely crippling and completely turn around the lives of many, many patients. So, a lot we can do. And is that the greatest joy of being a rheumatologist, the most fulfilling aspect? I think it is for me. Uh, I wouldn't say that's true for everybody. I'm not sure if either of you reads the case records of the Massachusetts General Hospital in New England Journal of Medicine. Yes. 
And I always noticed from the time I was a medical student that the great success of the doctor in those articles was figuring out the diagnosis. Yes. And often the patient would die. And you're like, <laughs> like, what good is this, you know? But for a lot of rheumatologists, it's that cerebral aspect of being able to figure out things that other people can't. And also to do it in a way, and this is the other plug I'm going to give for rheumatology. We can make almost all of our diagnoses without an MRI or a CT scan or a scope of something or, you know, or some crazy procedure. We can do it by talking to our patients and examining them. Physical exam is still a bastion of rheumatology. And it's one of the wonderful things that I think is great. I actually think that our healthcare system could save billions of dollars if there was a rheumatologist assigned to each emergency room to figure out all those costochondritis cases that are not heart attacks and figure out all those you know, other fibromyalgia patients that are masquerading as dire diseases. But so, so Bill, when you, when you say that, it makes me wonder, as you look back over your career the last maybe 20 years, has technology played a big part in rheumatology as a specialty? And if so, how? So not so much, interestingly. I think the technology that has played a big part is the drug development technology, Mm. where we can now treat our patients with so many better options than we used to have. But on the other hand, in terms of making the diagnosis, if you look at the criteria for the diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis or lupus and compare the uh, criteria that was present in the 70s to the criteria now, it hasn't changed very much. It's not that now you need to get an MRI to show mm. that there's a certain inflammation somewhere. That's not it at all. You know, I, maybe the one exception to that might be polymyositis and dermatomyositis, where an MRI is very helpful in showing discrete muscle inflammation before you do a biopsy. So you, you know, this is the inflammatory uh, myopathy that's happening, the muscle inflammation. That's pretty interesting because, I mean, if you think about it, and Tom, as we reflect on a lot of the specialties that we've sort of uh, dove into in this way, technology's had a real transformative effect in the last two decades, it, for good and for bad, certainly driving costs, and sometimes certainly, you know, interfering maybe with some of the art of the practice of a various specialty, uh, like you referenced, laying hands on people and actually examining them. Um, so it, it sort of makes you a classical, a classical specialist in a way. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, you know, I think in rheumatology, there's been a big push for musculoskeletal ultrasound to be used. But quite honestly, I think it's a billing gimmick. You know, yes. rheumatologists need a procedure like everybody else does so they can bill <laughs> for it. Um, I'm sorry, I'm sad to say. Uh, in medicine, we just can't stand it if there's not an image involved. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There has to be an image. Got to be a picture somewhere. So, Bill, at the risk of being helpful to our listeners, when should a patient consider seeing a rheumatologist? I think any time your doctor can't figure out what's going on, a rheumatologist is always a good bet because we see the weird different things that are out there. And not only in our field, but we're also fairly familiar with the weird different things going on in different fields. So if your doctor is scratching his head and saying, I just can't figure this out. The other thing is that if you have a chronic arthritis of any type and you're just not getting the relief that you think you should be getting, you should go to a rheumatologist because there's a tremendous amount that rheumatologists can do to help chronic inflammatory arthritis or even osteoarthritis. you've You've really affirmed my initial opinions. Tom asked me earlier in the show what had my impressions been of rheumatologists through my career? And I said something along the lines of the really smart guys that you sent patients to when you couldn't figure out what was wrong with them. <laughs> right, exactly. You're affirming that. Exactly. So, so, Bill, as a Catholic, you as a deacon, how do your Catholic beliefs influence how you act as a rheumatologist? So I, I always like to uh, call to mind one of my favorite quotes from St. Therese of Lisieux. Uh, She And I actually, when I give my lecture to medical students once a year, I like to put this up there. And the, the quote is this, without love, deeds, no matter how brilliant, count as nothing. And so I think that that is really such a truism, that no matter how smart you are, no matter how brilliant you are, no matter how quickly you get to the right diagnosis, 
no matter how great your procedural techniques are, if your patients don't know that you care about them, that you actually love them at the heart of everything and you're trying to do what's best for them, they're not gonna take their meds, they're not gonna be compliant with their visits, and you might as well throw them a towel. So, you know, that to me is one of the major focuses of my uh, approach to patients is to actually care about them and, you know, to try to do what's best for them no matter what. Bill, that's a perfect way to end the first half of your interview before we head into the research world. We'll be back with more Dr. Doctor here from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer <laughs> Radio. We'll pick back up with Dr. Bill Williams, our rheumatologist, and we're going to change gears a bit and talk about that other part of your life that's equally, if not even more fascinating than rheumatology, and that is you are, are a researcher, even a, an entrepreneurial uh, researcher. Tell us uh, about that work, what you do, and how you became involved with that. So it's a long story, but I'll try to make it short. Um, <laughs> I've always been involved in, uh, interested in research. Back when I was in high school, I was doing uh, marine biology research in, you know, during the summers. And then when I went to college, I did uh, a bacteriological research. And uh, you know, I thought that that was very interesting. And then of course, uh, during medical school, I did some immunology research. But when I get to your internship and residency, of course, you don't have time for anything else. So I just 100% time on that. Um, and then when I got to my fellowship, again, I was back in the research field doing immunology research. I fell in love with immunology. I just thought it was uh, such a cool um, approach to thinking. The, the concepts in immunology are so uh, interesting to me. Um, and then after doing my second fellowship, I uh, stayed on at the University of Pennsylvania on faculty, uh, was there all together for about a dozen years, and uh, did a lot of really nice research, really uh, interesting stuff. Uh, but I saw a lot of people leaving academics and going and starting biotechnology companies, and this was in the 80s. So you have to put it in perspective, a lot of biotech companies were starting up, and all these people were like jumping out from their, uh, they, they, you know, have some cool idea, they jump out, start a company, file a bunch of patents, and they would do this really cool research. The only problem is they didn't know how to develop drugs. So almost invariably, they wouldn't, nothing would ever come of it. Um, not always the case, but in many cases. And in other cases, I mean, I remember seeing, uh, you know, uh, IDEC Pharmaceuticals was uh, started out of, uh, it's an, it was an immunology company, it started out of the anti-idiotypic theory, theory, Yerdes network hypothesis, which is very complicated and I don't want to have to get into. Um, and they never developed a single thing using that technology. But eventually they, they uh, developed Rituxan. And so Rituxan is now, you know, multi-billion dollar drug for lymphoma and has been for a long time. So they actually switched gears to something else before they got successful. Well, after being in academics for a while uh, and looking around, I decided I wanted to see how drugs are actually developed. Mm. So I went over and I uh, took a position in clinical pharmacology at SmithKline Beecham and learned clinical pharmacology and experimental medicine. I lived through the merger with Glaxo to form GlaxoSmithKline, which, you know, uh, for those who have never been through a corporate merger, believe me, it is not easy. It's, it's, it's bad. But uh, I lived through that. And then eventually I moved over to a company named Insight Corporation, I-N-C-Y-T-E. And I put into the clinic for the first time a drug called Jackify, and uh, now called Jackify. And I'll uh, just tell you one quick story from that. Uh, I, I was in charge of the first in human study. And at the same time, I was covering the oncology study, looking at Jackify in myelofibrosis. And because we were between oncologists, so I was covering. 
And the first patient treated with, uh, with myelofibrosis, treated with Jacophy, uh, ruxolitinib is the generic name, uh, came in for their first visit after having been on the drug for one week. And myelofibrosis causes huge splenomegaly. So the spleen gets tremendous. Then they have this wasting syndrome where they lose weight. Uh, they feel lousy all the time. Uh, and their blood counts are way out of whack. So the first patient came in for their first visit after being on this drug for one week. And the doctor who was covering down at MD Anderson called me and said, the patient feels great. Their spleen is shrunk. Their counts are better and they're gaining weight. And, wow. And right. And so <laughs> I hung up the phone from him and I called my boss who then emailed his boss who was the CEO of the company at the time, Paul Friedman. And my joke is that ever since then, Paul Friedman expected all of our drugs to work like that. <laughs> First patient, one week on therapy, you should already know if you have a drug. What's taking you so long? That, that sounds like an episode of Star Trek, where at the beginning of the episode, the doctor's trying to develop a vaccine or a treatment, and by the end of the episode, he's treated a whole civilization successfully. That, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and you did right. that once. Whenever, bones, I think about, whenever I think about medical research, bones, I, I yeah. always imagine uh, a physician standing in front of a patient, and the physician says, we've got this idea that might help you. It's a, it's a drug we've never given anyone, <laughs> but we'd like you to try it. Um, what, how, does, how does a drug become okay for humans to take and try? How do we get that far uh, in developing pharmaceuticals? Well, it's different in oncology than it is in anything else. And right mm -hmm. now I'm working on an oncology project. I work for BSL Therapeutics Corporation, which is developing a, 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 an immunotherapy, a cellular immunotherapy that's both uh, personalized and off the shelf. And so we're, we're working on that, and it's a lot of fun to do it. And in oncology, the way it usually happens is that you get patients who have failed everything else and you prove that your drug is safe in them and you get an inkling that there's some activity. And then you negotiate with the FDA to get to the patients where it's going to be more likely to work in, not the patients who have kind of run the gamut of everything else and uh, really don't respond to much else. Um, now, in other fields, it's different. So... The way it works, and I've worked for a number of years in clinical pharmacology, is uh, that you start with clinical pharmacology studies in healthy volunteers. So the first thing, to, to get to the point where you have something to test in people, it has to be proven safe in animal studies in two different species, usually uh, a rodent species like mice or rats, and then either dogs or monkeys, usually cinemologous or rhesus macaques. And those studies... Uh, you usually have to prove a month's worth of safety before you can give a single dose to a person. Uh, that's typically what happens. You can actually get away with less than that, but, you know, and you usually go to very, very high doses in the animals until you know what the toxicity is so you can look for it in the healthy volunteers. Then you start with a single dose, very low dose, and you gradually build up the dose to a level that's getting to blood concentrations that you think are going to have biological activity, uh, so-called pharmacodynamic activity. And once you have that, then you go to repeat those studies in the patients and once you, in the healthy volunteers. And then once you've proven that that's safe, usually you've done additional toxicology studies. You can have three months of dosing or six months, um, and you can go to a proof of concept study. Now, proof-of-concept studies are done typically by investigators who have dedicated practices to these things. And they go to their patients and they say to them, you know, this drug has been shown to be safe with, you know, in dosing in, in healthy volunteers. We're going to be starting at doses that we know are tolerated okay. And we think it has a chance of helping your, and then fill in the blank, diabetes, psoriasis, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, you know, high cholesterol, whatever the condition might be. So then you'll do your proof of concept study in enough patients that you can con convince yourself that you have something that's going to work. And you have to then also convince the FDA. And then often what happens at that point, you've done all your toxicology studies at that point, you know that it's going to be safe to dose, you know, although you're not going to know yet 
unusual or rare safety events that doesn't come up until you do large populations. And then you'll do your phase three study, your, your registration study, which you usually negotiate with the FDA what that study is going to look like. Uh, and so, you know, you then do this large, usually randomized controlled study um, in patients where, where you're not going to hurt them if they're on placebo or instead of placebo, you're using the best available therapy that they could get anyway. And then you can, you know, if it's positive, then you can get marketing approval with the FDA. So, so, so Bill, if tonight we had a great idea for a new drug, what would we have to assume? How long would it take us before this whole process was complete and physicians were writing prescriptions for that new drug? So it typically takes about 10 years. Oh my. Uh, when we worked on Jackify, it was like setting a speed record. We got that one done in seven years. Uh, and that was in an oncology uh, condition. In oncology, you get all kinds of free passes uh, from the FDA if you're going into a patient population that doesn't have any other options or very few other options. Uh, so uh, it's going to take a long time because you have to, first of all, prove that your molecule works in vitro, prove that it works in animals, um, and then prove that it's safe in animals. You have to learn the pharmacokinetics in animals. In other words, what's the half-life of the drug in the blood? How long does it last in the blood once you take it? How well is it absorbed? All those things you have to work through. So Bill, I'd like to, to, the first to address step. something that I think is a conception I had and a lot of other people have, and I think you're dispelling it, which is good. But the conception I had about research going through high school, college, medical school, even after is that Research is where the cool kids go, those who want to have the most fun, the most glamour, the most finding out new things, but it's really kind of a drudge. You're doing things over and over again, trial and error, and it's really slow to see progress, and you may work a whole career and never see a drug go to market and help a patient. Is that right? right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. Now, I've really been blessed in my uh, time in, in pharmaceuticals because I've been on you know, over 10 different drugs that have been approved in one way or another. Some of them wow. are some supplementary approvals. So the drug was already approved, but then we, for example, Zofran, uh, which is an sure. anti-nausea drug, I was involved in getting that approved in children. So, you know, that kind of thing. But then I was work, worked on a number of other drugs that were approved for the first time, like Boniva, which is a osteoporosis yes. drug. And I mentioned Jacify and also Baricitinib, also called Illumiant, which is for um, rheumatoid arthritis. So I've been very, very fortunate to have a good experience with that, but I've also seen many drugs fail. And that's really been heartbreaking in many ways because often, uh, and I can think of one example in particular, we had a drug at Insight that worked in diabetes and had a very good side effect profile. And it was just completely dropped because it didn't you know, um, knock your socks off with the efficacy. It was good for efficacy, but it wasn't like, you know, you know, unbelievable for efficacy. And so because of that, since in diabetes, the uh, phase three studies have to be so big, that nobody wanted to uh, take it forward. Well, you know, given, given where we are right now in the pandemic, it's probably worth calling out that, you know, I think we're all so anxious for a vaccine or anxious for a treatment for coronavirus, but it's worth reminding listeners that this process takes a very long time, as it should, because with the concept of first, we must do no harm, um, but yet we're, we're impatient and we want things when we want them and immediately, sort of in this immediate environment we live in. But these things don't happen quickly, do they? No, they tend not to. Now, I think in terms of the coronavirus vaccine, that may turn out to be somewhat of an exception because uh, it, you know, it still takes time to run the trials, but they're being greatly facilitated by everybody in the world. Uh, so the uh, people who have been able to produce vaccines, they're getting tested very rapidly in a lot of different patients. And what the companies are doing, and the government is helping with this, is they're manufacturing the vaccine already so that it'll be ready to go as soon as they know if it works. And the question I have is whether or not they're going to wait for phase three results or if they're going to allow some to be used, you know, with phase two data, because that's what's done in oncology right now. 
in mm. oncology, in oncology, you can get a drug approved with phase two data, but then you have to do a confirmatory phase three later on. But uh, you know, for coronavirus, given the constraints it's put on our society, they might allow some uh, phase two safety level and efficacy level vaccines to get out there and to be used in a, in a wider population, at least in high risk individuals, first responders and last responders and that kind of thing. So what is your company, BriaCell, trying to develop right now, Bill? So BriaCell really is, has put my two careers together in a way because it's a pure immunology product. And I love immunology and I understand how the immune system works. And at the same time, it's a, a drug development uh, opportunity. Uh, although it's not a small molecule, it's a whole cell uh, immunotherapy. So uh, the way it came about was Dr. Charles Wiseman, who was out of MD Anderson and also uh, at St. Vincent's Medical Center in Los Angeles, developed this cell line, which he called SVBR1. It's a breast cancer cell line. And he would take it and irradiate it so it couldn't grow anymore. And then he would use it to immunize other patients with breast cancer. And then he found that some of them actually would respond with the tumor shrinking. Wow. And he used a couple of other commonly used drugs to enhance the immune response in this program. He also genetically engineered the cell line so that it makes uh, sargramistin, which is a GMCSF. It's a growth factor specifically which activates the early part of the immune response, the uh, you know, dendritic cells and macrophages and whatnot. And so he had this data that this was, you know, had some good data with this, with this drug. And we later were able to figure out subsets of patients that it seems to work better in. So now we're in the midst of proof of concept testing and doing our studies in combination with uh, other immunotherapies, things that people might have heard of like Keytruda, uh, Optivo. We're using those types of drugs, also called checkpoint inhibitors, to kind of um, take the foot off the brakes of the immune response while we're putting our foot on the gas. So it's been very, very exciting to be working on that. And then we're taking our technology and we're going to be applying it to other cancer types as well. So an irradiated whole cell product with other additives to make it work stronger. Is that correct? Is Pretty there a much. name for that type of product? So it's been called various things over time. Uh, the one that is approved that is similar is Provenge, also known as uh, Cipulusal T. Um, yeah, easy for is, you to say, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I'm not even sure I said it correctly. But, uh, but, but that's, that's a dendritic cell therapy, uh, but it's much more difficult to manufacture because it works by taking blood out of the patient, processing it, activating the dendritic cells, which are part of the immune cells, the white blood cells, and then putting it back into the patient along with a prostate cancer antigen which then uh, it, those dendritic cells will use to stimulate the immune system to attack prostate cancer. And that's approved. So that's the one example of an approved therapy that's Very similar good. to what we're doing. So but ours is so-called off the shelf because it's grown up in, in vitro. How do your Catholic beliefs influence how you live and work as a researcher? Okay, now there's a story there that I... Uh, uh, you know, I love telling the story, so I'll, I'll share with you this one. So I came to my Catholic faith uh, in 1998. Uh, I was a, a convert from pretty much nothingism or pantheism <laughs> or something, whatever-ism. Uh, and, and after I converted, uh, I started to learn about my Catholic faith, and the Catholic Medical Association played a huge role in that. Especially, I consider George Asayu one of my mentors. George's, mm -hmm. you guys both know George. Yes. Um, and so, as I went along, I started to learn about you know the different teachings of the church on different things. And one day, I realized when I was at GlaxoSmithKline that uh, our clinical protocols, uh, since we were looking at very early studies in healthy volunteers with drugs where we didn't know all the risks we would tell women who would come into these early studies that they had to use contraception. Right. Okay. Yes. And so this, and this is, you know, the FDA has this in their language, all the international bodies that govern research uh, have this in the language that they say should be used. 
So I went to my spiritual director at the time and I said, I don't know about this. Is this a problem for me? So he said, well, let me ask, you know, uh, Monsignor McMullen, who was a, a, a moral theologian. And one of the things I like to tell people is that if you want kind pastoral advice that's going to be very comforting and affirming in what you're doing, don't go to a moral theologian. Okay? <laughs> but if you want the truth about what's good and bad, go to a moral theologian. And so he wrote me literally like a 10-page essay. And the end of the essay was, quit your job, pretty much. Wow. If, because you're, you're cooperating with evil. You're actually telling people that they need to use contraception, and contraception is bad. So, you know, being, you know, a fervent, you know, Catholic convert and uh, on fire with the, uh, you know, with love of the faith, I asked another moral theologian, and then I asked another one. And um, I kept getting the same answer, you know. Um, so I finally went to my, my uh, uh, upper opposite Glaxo, and I said, I'm just not going to allow this in my protocols. And it caused a huge outcry. But the other thing that I, I had managed to become friends with John Haas, who at the time was the director of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. And so we actually formed a joint study group between the CMA and the NCBC to study the question of bioethics in clinical research. And there's actually a publication by the CMA and the NCBC jointly that uh, talks about the Catholic approach to uh, clinical research, you know, Catholic uh, bioethics and clinical research. And it's a wonderful document. Anybody who does clinical research should have a copy of that document. So, Bill, bottom line, how do you deal with those women who most people would say need to be on contraceptives if they're in a study? What's the Catholic approach? So the Catholic approach is to talk about the ends instead of the means in this case. So what we do is we tell these women that they need, must not become pregnant while on the study. Okay, It's not our responsibility to tell them how to not become pregnant. That is up to them and their moral consciences, as long as we don't lead them in the direction that they need to use contraception. Were you able so, to keep your job at GSK? Uh, well, actually, I quit and went to Insight. And uh -huh. when I went to Insight Corporation, I wrote the part of the, you know, protocols and the consent forms for the company, because we were very small at the time, that dealt with that. So I was sure it was in line with Catholic teaching. And uh, so I kind of skirted the issue since then, in a way. But, but you know, well, you addressed it, though. But you addressed the ends instead of the means. I really like that way you stated that. Yeah, if I understood you right, you you told women what ought to be done, and then you trusted them to do it in a way that was consistent with their values. You you may be at risk of becoming a Catholic OBGYN. <laughs> so so Bill, oh, to wrap things up, what? What resources would you recommend for people, and especially for young people who are considering careers in either rheumatology or, or research? Where, where would you direct them? So for research, it would definitely be the uh, Catholic by, uh, Guide to Medical uh, or Clinical Research Ethics that we put together between the CMA and the NCBC. That's really a good document. It has principles and guidelines, and then it also has a number of case studies. How so do they find it? Uh, well, it's available on the CMA, uh, in the CMA bookstore, and from the, from the NCBC. So if you go to the NCBC website, it's available in their bookstore as well. Uh, and it also was published as an issue of the Lineker Quarterly some time ago. Um, and so I think it's maybe even available online through that, uh, although I'm not 100% sure about that. And I think for rheumatology, it's really much more of a case of, uh, you know, meeting rheumatologists themselves and people who are, are interested in that. There's a very nice document put out by the American College of Rheumatology called the Primer on the Rheumatic Diseases, which has uh, become thicker and thicker over the years. When I graduated, it was about this thick, and now I think it's about this thick. Uh, but it's, it's a great overview of the different rheumatic diseases, and it can show you uh, a lot about rheumatology from the clinical perspective, but it is written for medical professionals. Hmm. Bill Williams, thank you so much for enlightening us and our audience about rheumatology and research. God bless you and all the good work you do. Well, God bless you too, Tom and Chris, and just have a, a, a blessed night. Thank you. Thank you.
Welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the studios, virtual in this case, of Redeemer Radio. And Tom, it's time because everyone wants to know the answer to the trivia question. So Alexis Carell in 1902 was a young physician and he was at Lourdes, France. So that's the where it happened. And what he witnessed in 1902 and refused to deny happened is a miraculous healing. There was a woman named Marie Ballet who had tuberculous peritonitis. Her abdomen was hugely swollen, full of mucus. She was too sick to bring to the baths, so they had to take three pitchers of Lourdes water and pour it over her. And as they poured it over her in less than half an hour, he saw her belly go down from this huge mass to normal. And she was walking that night where they thought she was going to die that day. And now, it's worth reminding listeners, he wasn't just some Joe Schmo off the street. This is a Nobel Prize winner, uh, who had an inventor and a great scientist who probably had a healthy dose of skepticism when it came to things like this. And he didn't even accept the Catholic faith until 36 years later, after <laughs> that lady who became a nun died and was probably interceding for him. The very year she died is when he had his conversion. Wow. Uh, amazing story. So we have less than a minute left. So we thank you, listeners, for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We need you to share the good news of Dr. Doctor. We hope you think it's good news uh, with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app, or they can always find us at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor and be sure to rate and review our show because it'll help other listeners track us down this is dr tom mcgovern and i'm his co-host dr chris stroud and we'll be signing off until your next dose of dr doctor dr doctor is the official radio program of the catholic medical association whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine the views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit redeemerradio.com slash doctor.